and it could take years to process information that way. That's crazy. Cases go dry, people disappear, evidence gets stale. It should not take years to process some of these basic requests. Welcome to a new episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Christopher Starke, and on today's episode, we welcome Gary Kalman. Gary is the director of Transparency International's US office, and it is his third time on the podcast. In the interview, Gary and Matthew take a deep dive into anti-corruption legislation in the US. For context, we already recorded the interview in early February, But as you know, our last episodes all covered the war in Ukraine. This is why we only air the episode today. However, the topics are not particularly time sensitive. So without further ado, over to the conversation between Gary Kalman and Matthew Stevenson. and welcome to Kickback, the Global Anti-Corruption Podcast. This is Matthew Stevenson, and I am here today with Gary Kalman. This is becoming something of an annual tradition, Gary. This is the third time I've had the opportunity for you to, uh, to speak with you on our podcast, and it's been almost about a year on a semi-regular basis. So, so welcome back to Kickback. Thanks. Happy to be here. Uh, well, great to have you. Because we've done this before, I won't start out with a lot of questions about your background, Uh Listeners who are interested can go back and listen to your earlier podcast episodes. Let's get right into um, interesting and important developments on the anti-corruption front, uh, particularly those relating to the United States, either uh, domestically focused efforts in the United States or maybe even more relevant to, I know, a lot of the things that your office has been working on. Um, what progress, if any, the U.S. is making on the fight against global corruption and against the role of U.S. entities facilitating or otherwise contributing to that corruption? Yeah, it's actually um, a really interesting time to be doing this work in the United States. I think after you know 10 or 15 years of people putting out reports and laying a lot of the groundwork and raising these issues uh, in and out of Congress, we're finally seeing sort of an opening um, to move and change policy. So I, I think that's that's an exciting thing. Um, you know, there's several places we could start, I suppose, first is with the administration. Um, you know, they are looking, well, they're in the midst right now of two or three different rulemakings uh, to cut down on the US role in uh, facilitating global money laundering. And let me just sort of run through some of those. One most uh, perhaps the largest and most important rulemaking is around implementation of what's called the Corporate Transparency Act. I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with the role of anonymous companies in facilitating um, money laundering and helping corrupt and criminal actors move money. Uh, US, the U.S. last year passed the law and they're implementing it through rulemaking. They just put out a proposed rule and comments on that rule um, were invited and closed last week. The rule is a pretty strong rule. Um, we think it appropriately and accurately reflects the intent of the law, but uh, and we can certainly drill down more on that if it's of interest, but we think that it's starting in a good place. The second um, is a rulemaking in which comments are due on Monday. Uh, so things are happening rapid fire. 
uh, to close various loopholes in the real estate sector. There's from the Pandora Papers and even before that growing evidence that U.S. real estate is a magnet for dirty money. The Treasury Department, through its Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN, put out a series of questions in advance of a, of a rulemaking to gather information from various stakeholders, and they're uh, signaled that they're going to move forward with a rule. There's a number of other smaller rules around uh, the antiquities market and updating some other anti-money laundering provisions. We are, the last thing I'll mention with the administration is we are also hopeful that once they get through some of these rulemakings, they can move on to a rulemaking around investment advisors. Um, And that is another big area of concern, an $11 trillion market for the private investment market in the United States. Uh, And money laundering wise, there's not a lot of oversight or transparency. So looking to see if we can make uh, some progress on that. So that's just the administration. So terrific. just first a quick clarification for our listeners. We're having this conversation on February 17th. Uh, the episode probably won't be on air until the end of February. So some of the events that you're describing that happened last week, actually, from our listeners' perspective, happened about three weeks ago. And some of the things that you talked about happening next week actually happened from our listeners' perspective last week, uh, if that makes sense. Um, but you know, things, things are moving pretty fast in this area. It's encouraging, I have to say, to hear about all of this uh, rulemaking activity. And of course, to clarify for our listeners who are less familiar with the U.S. system, rulemakings in the executive branch are things that can occur without the intervention of the U.S. Congress. So the U.S. Congress will often pass a law like the Corporate Transparency Act, but even though that act in general terms announces a particular policy or sets policy in a particular direction, uh, a lot of the crucial decisions are left to the implementing agency. So the Corporate Transparency Act was going to be a big victory for the anti-money laundering, anti-corruption community uh, regardless, but there was a lot of there were a lot of questions about whether the implementing rule would be as strong as the anti-corruption community wanted, or whether it would be a weaker, uh, less aggressive understanding of how to go about implementing that statute. Um, let me ask you, in addition to these specific things the administration has done, one thing uh, that I, I definitely wanted to ask you about has to do with this interesting document. It's not a, a setting a new policy, but this White House anti-corruption strategy document that came out, I believe it was last month, uh, maybe a little bit longer ago. My impression was that we hadn't seen a document like this before. Various presidents and various administrations had made declarations about opposition to corruption, but I can't remember seeing in previous administrations something like a White House anti-corruption strategy document like this. I wanted to know what you thought about this document, both whether it's significant or not. I know there was some debate with some people being a little more cynically saying this doesn't really say anything uh, new. It doesn't commit the administration to any particular policies. It's basically just kind of a PR document and others who thought it was actually quite significant the White House issued this document. And then also uh, your views on the substance, the issues that the document chose to emphasize, the the policies the document seemed to indicate the U.S. government would be supporting at home and abroad as as, one of the leading uh, figures in the civil society anti-corruption movement in the United States. I'd be very interested, and I'm sure our listeners would be as well, in kind of your assessment of this document. Um, I'm glad you asked that. So uh, just to take a step back of, because I think it's important to understand its relevance 
by looking at how it was created. Um, and this is not a long history here, but last year in June, the president put out uh, what was called a national security study memorandum. And so this is basically uh, an official statement from the president and the administration calling for the first time corruption, a core national security interest. So elevating corruption from being something that's sort of nasty and unfortunate to actually uh, impacting and having a potential influence on our national security. At that time, he charged agencies involved in various financial matters to come back with what they will do in their own uh, agencies um, and departments to combat global corruption. And this strategy that you uh, mentioned came out in December, and it was the culmination of that process. So dozens of agencies putting in and saying, here's what we're going to do. Now, for those that were, you know, looking at those that were skeptical and those that said it was really good, I'm probably going to fall a little bit in the middle, probably a little bit more on, I do think it's significant. Um, and first, just in terms of the politics, and then we can dive into the policy and the substance of it, is these kinds of documents and these declarations that this is important or a priority, they do actually have meaning because the people in the government, the civil service workers and the people that are implementing policies need to have direction. And I can go in and lobby and push all I want, but unless direction from the top says, no, 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 you're allowed to spend your time on this, this is a priority, it's just not going to happen. Because they have, the government has very, very specific rules, you can call it red tape and bureaucracy, but they have to follow those. And, you know, for the most part, there's good people that are trying to just follow the law. So having that statement allows them to then work on this in ways in which they probably couldn't justify before. So I do think that that in and of itself is an important step. Now let's talk about the substance. The substance um, is, I think, quite good directionally. It depends what they do with it. Um, and if, in fact, we do get people working on this and moving forward uh, in the way that the document is laid out, I think it, it promises quite a lot. So for example, it the document specifically lists that we want to have strong beneficial ownership rules. We want to have transparency in the real estate market. It calls out, doesn't say that they're going to actually do a rulemaking on investment advisors, but it does say that the private investment sector is large and opaque and presents various, um, you know, money laundering threats. Um, so it also says that they need to take a look at the US role globally and take a look at our foreign aid. Are there ways in which we can support other uh, movements and activists around the world where they're trying to defend independent journalists an independent judiciary, civil society, anti-corruption advocates, whistleblowers, et cetera. As a result of that, we actually saw in late uh, mid-December announcements from USAID uh, and the State Department to bolster programs that do just that, that try and put money into countries where there's uh, opportunities where fledgling democracies could either go the wrong way or um, come back into the fold. So I think that there are early signs that there's some seriousness behind the document. Obviously, time will tell. 
On that last point, I mean, one thing I'm kind of interested in, particularly given that you work with Transparency International, which is an organization that has a global reach. Each transparency chapter in most countries, or as in the U.S., sometimes an office, though not a formal chapter, is a, it's, it's, its own organization, but they're all part of a global network. Um, one thing that I'm curious about is when a country like the United States and the government of the United States is trying to make decisions about what kinds of efforts or groups or initiatives to support in other countries, right? When USAID is trying to, USAID, the US Agency for International Development is trying to make these decisions. How much of a role can an organization like TI play in the connections that you would have, for example, with your counterpart offices in various countries around the world in influencing those kinds of decisions? Is that something, and this is something I have interacted with people at TI for a while, but I've never really thought about this that directly. Is that something that happens? Is that not something that happens? I mean, do you or someone from the TIUS office have the ear of someone at USAID and can you know, transmit information that you're getting from TI chapters in you know, Uganda or Colombia or Sri Lanka or Malaysia? Or is that just not something that happens in the, in the TI network? It absolutely does. Um, I mean, there's several examples I can give you last year. And, and as I list these examples. I don't want to overstate it. I don't think that there's anyone sitting at USAID or the State Department or at the National Security Council going, okay, we'll just find out what Transparency International thinks and then we'll do it. So I, I don't want to overstate it. But I do think that uh, we've seen people in all of those agencies reach out to Transparency International and other organizations in either private conversations or uh, even through you know, panel discussions or what have you. I'll give you an example. When USAID Administrator um, Power was going to speak at a UN conference, um, she had the USAID sponsored a panel that she wanted to talk about corruption and what should the US be doing uh, to help other countries combat corruption and bolster democratic institutions. And she invited the vice chair of Transparency International who his home base is in Zambia, to come speak with her. And that panel lasted an hour uh, where she basically talked to him <laughs> and found out what, you know, the concerns. He works with some Pan-African associations and talked a lot about what was going on. And the administrator of USAID spent an hour of her time listening to what was going on um, based on what Transparency International chapters were facing. We also are having conversations and we can talk about some of the multilateral gatherings this year, but the U.S. is going to host the Summit of the Americas this year. It's going to be in Los Angeles in June. And there are ongoing discussions with Latin American chapters of Transparency International. What should the agenda look like? How do we incorporate uh, corruption? How do we incorporate some of the commitments that were made previous uh, conference three years ago, four years ago, um, to make sure that we don't forget um, about what was said and hold people accountable to their commitments. So I think there's a lot um, of opportunity where the administration does reach out and it's up to us to make sure that we're also doing on our end, reaching out and pushing that message as well. So your mention of the Summit of the Americas, which is upcoming, calls to mind another question I want to ask you, which is about the Summit for Democracy, uh, which was held you know, last year, I believe. And I'm, you know, it's interesting because I was I was not directly involved in that. I didn't participate at all. I know a lot of civil society groups, especially those working on anti-corruption, were very interested in this. Uh, the President Biden and people senior in the Biden administration, in, in a way that's thematically similar to that strategy document we we're just discussing about foregrounded 
corruption, anti-corruption and so forth as, as a big part of that agenda. I don't have a good sense ultimately of what impact, if any, that meeting had and what came out of it, if anything. So um, just like I asked you to do a kind of your your view, your assessment of the White House's uh, strategy document, strengths, weaknesses, how much does it matter, and so forth. Can I invite you to do a similar thing for uh, the Summit for Democracy, in particular, the aspects of that summit that were concerned with corruption and related issues? Sure. I think the Summit for Democracy, yes, it was a in our community, it was a it was an extremely watched event, and people were participating and trying to make the most of of the opportunity. Um, here, I'm going to say it's a little bit more of a wait and see situation. There were a lot of good things that were said. Uh, there were a lot of things that I think we hoped for that didn't happen, and so it depends what the follow through is like. And let me drill down a little bit on what I mean by that. So the summit uh, invited about 100 countries, um, and they were a mixed bag, and there were differences of opinion on whether the right people were invited, some uh, struggling democracies were invited. I'm less concerned about who was invited. I think they had a plan that if they can get some struggling democracies or people that would go, oh, that, that country's in trouble, they thought they could bolster that. I'm not going to question the, the invite list. I think that that's sort of a, a side um a side issue. They were hoping that countries that showed up to the summit would make commitments on what they would do to fight corruption and bolster human rights and fight authoritarianism in their um, own countries as well as working multilaterally. At the summit itself, we didn't see very much. There were everybody, all the representative countries, participating countries gave three minute speeches where they gave, you know, as you would imagine in a political speech, sort of vague statements about corruption is bad and we're doing everything we can to fight it, but there weren't a lot of details. They then gave countries until the end of January, so they gave them an extra month to come back with written commitments. And those commitments were actually just released. Um, since this is going to air in three weeks, uh, they were just released at the beginning of February. And about 50 countries, 50 some odd countries came through with written commitments. And we're going through those right now. So I can't tell you, I think some of them are good. Some of them are still a little vague. Um, the key is that the summit in last December was turned into more of a kickoff event for what they're calling the year of action, which is this year, culminating in a second summit either at the end of the year this year or the beginning of next year to look at what actually happened. And that's why I say it's a wait and see kind of thing. They're talking about creating uh, multi-stakeholder groups that, inv that involve civil society, private sector and governments um, to look at various issues that were raised at the summit and looking at commitments that countries made and holding them accountable to those commitments so that progress could be reported on at the second summit. They haven't started those multi-stakeholder groups yet. Um, and they're talking about sending out invitations. There was a meeting with the Secretary of State uh, just at the beginning of February with a number of civil society groups where he again said that he's committed to the process uh, and wants to make sure that commitments are followed through. So I think that on the substance of it, 
we still need to wait and see. Let me, I'll say two other quick things on it. One is I do think it was important to have. We are facing challenges to democracy all over the world and getting people together to talk about this. It does help to highlight this and get people thinking and pushing on it. Um, obviously, we've seen this happen before and people leave and nothing happens. And so that's why I'm saying it's a wait and see uh, kind of thing. I think it also matters what the U.S. does in terms of pushing countries uh, to participate in these multi-stakeholder gatherings. They're talking about engaging embassies. Um, and so all of that will matter and we'll see what happens at the end of the year. Fascinating. I mean, the, the analogy that immediately leaps to mind uh, with respect to this process is the anti-corruption summit, uh, which was held, you know, 10 million years ago when David Cameron was prime minister. Um, in a similar vein, countries made commitments of a sort, some of which were reasonably specific and others of which were extremely vague. My recollection is that Transparency International, a Transparency International office, it might've been the UK office, it might've been the secretariat, I'm not remembering, was attempting to monitor countries and whether they were living up to their commitments. I think I, that was a good faith effort. I think events sort of overtook attempts to keep the keep a focus on the London summit, um, particularly because once Cameron was no longer prime minister, there wasn't the kind of follow-up you were describing. It'll be interesting to see whether this sort of U.S.-led, I think it's fair to describe this as a U.S.-led process, will produce um, or maybe a more encouraging set of, set of results. Um, one thing I want to ask, oh, sir, please feel free to say something. I was just going to say, uh, you know, the, I think you're exactly right. Other events overtook the summit, and so the follow-through was not as much as we want. I will say, though, that, you know, Transparency International UK was the one that was tracking the commitments and, and did a number, a bunch of the accountability work. There was some progress that was made. You know, obviously, we always want more, and... I do think that given the hype around the summit that the amount of progress was not as much as you would expect. But I don't want to dismiss that as being a total failure because I don't think it was. I think that we have seen an elevation of these issues and these summits do help to move that forward, which then results in, look, when last year, at the beginning of last year, had you asked me that by the end of last year, they would be coming out with rulemakings to regulate the real estate sector in the United States. Real, the residential real estate sector by itself is over $30 trillion. This is not a small part of the economy. And they're talking about putting some rules in place to make sure that that $30 trillion is not dirty money. I, I think if you asked me that at the beginning of the year, say, yeah, that's, that's going to take several years, not going to get to it in the first year. And they did. And I think part of it was the Summit for Democracy was a forcing mechanism that they felt they had to produce something. And then they ended up producing uh, a proposed rule. So I think that there are certain things that can come out, but there, and this is not for me being Pollyannish because there's definitely things that are not happening, not happening quickly enough. If you talk to the domestic anti-corruption groups, they will say that this entire summit missed the boat because it doesn't talk about domestic corruption. It's largely about global corruption and transnational crime. So there's plenty to, to criticize, and I don't mean to be Pollyannish about it, but I do think that it is something that we should try and make the most of because there are some things that can come out of it, even if it's not everything we wanted. I very much agree. And I, I realized even as I was making my remarks about the London uh, summit, they were probably coming off as overly negative. 
Robert Barrington, who was the executive director of TIUK at the time, is, uh, had been on the podcast, and I, he's, he's uh, had a lot of really interesting things to say. And I think that they and the work they did uh, in trying to get some kind of follow through was, was very useful. And even having the meeting was helpful. I mean, one thing that you said at the very beginning of our conversation that really struck me is you, know, you go 10, 15 years with nothing happening. And then suddenly these windows of opportunity arise and a lot can happen fairly quickly and you sort of never know when. So yeah, we shouldn't be Pollyannish. On the other hand, there's always a danger of, of adopting this like, you know, pseudo sophisticated cynical attitude about everything. But it also seems to be kind of dangerous. Yeah. When you think about it back in the U S a Patriot Act days, right? So 2001, we passed updates to the any money laundering laws, well, you know, technically the Bank Secrecy Act, and the real estate sector was included as a financial institution that was supposed to have rules. Within six months or so of that being passed, the real estate sector got a temporary exemption. It's 2022. That is a 20-year temporary exemption that they finally got around. So if nothing else, we're going to begin to, to rein in some of the sectors that should have been reined in. And we knew there was a problem 20 years ago. So well, let me ask you about another aspect of this. That's something we've talked about in our previous podcast episodes and, and off uh, and, and uh, just you know, in, in private conversations. That's something I have a little bit of anxiety about. And that has to do with the partisan dimension of U.S. anti-corruption policy. So, um, my impression is that despite the deep partisan divisions in the United States, which are not, in fact, that unusual globally, every democracy I can think of has pretty deep partisan divisions, um, anti-corruption and related issues like anti-money laundering have sometimes actually uh, commanded a reasonable degree of bipartisan support. Not universally, uh, it's not like consensus, but that often you can get people who are, who are quite liberal or progressive and people who are quite conservative and folks who are in the middle uh, agreeing on certain aspects of this issue. No one likes bribery. And you know, corporate secrecy and dirty money uh, facilitates all sorts of unlawful activity, you know, tax evasion, but also drug trafficking, human trafficking, all this stuff. So this is good, uh, basically. And we've talked in earlier discussions on the podcast about the way when you, particularly when you were still with the FACT Coalition, but you were able to work with broad coalition of partners and, and people across the spectrum to ult- and efforts that ultimately culminated in the Corporate Transparency Act, not just you guys, a whole coalition of civil society groups and others. So great. Um, I do start to get the sense that anti-corruption as a policy issue in the United States, as its profile has gone up a bit more, um, has started to develop potentially a bit more of a partisan lean, com- coupling the fact that the Donald Trump personally was, you know, ethically challenged at best, and certainly as a matter of policy, did not make anti-corruption uh, a centerpiece, either domestically or internationally. And the Biden administration, I mean, I think this is basically good. The Biden administration has decided to, it wants to own this issue from the president to the president's most senior, senior advisors, making this front and center. This is, uh, this is like our foreign policy is going to make this a, a cornerstone. But I have this nagging anxiety that the more that anti-corruption starts to seem like a, a capital D democratic issue, the harder it's going to be to put together these bipartisan coalitions. Um, I'm not saying you shouldn't try to get the Biden administration to embrace this sort of thing, but I guess what I want to ask is, um, 
How optimistic or pessimistic are you? Do you work very closely on these issues, including working with legislators and other lobbying groups and, and, and legislative staff? How optimistic or pessimistic are you uh, in the prospects for uh, retaining or even expanding bipartisan support for what we might describe as anti-corruption or anti-money laundering initiatives? No, it's an excellent question. And I think, you know, it's one that we struggle with. Obviously, we want the right policy. And so we have a number of folks working on the policy side of this, but the politics side is important. Otherwise, nothing gets done. And so let me start sort of by taking a step back and looking at uh, how you define corruption. And we don't need to get into a definition because I know that that could go down a rabbit hole and we can spend 10 hours and there's been lots of literature written about that. But when you look at domestic corruption, right? If you ask the average person on the street, you know, about corrupt government, they, they talk about domestic things, right? Our campaign finance system is just legalized bribery or people are manipulating the election system so that only their voters can vote and not the other sides or we're gerrymandering districts to benefit, you know, the politically entrenched. Those kinds of corruption issues, sadly, have fallen into a very partisan um, frame. And you know, people are working and there are legitimate players on both sides that have been trying to figure it out, but it has largely, at least in Congress, become quite a partisan, uh, an issue in which there is deep partisan divide. And that's going to take a lot of time and effort to try and turn that around. When you talk about the, these sort of issues of global transnational corruption, then things change. Because as you say, everybody's against corruption. And so it depends how you view corruption and what you think of when you say corruption. It's very easy for both sides uh, to say, oh, of course we don't want, you know, corruption out of China or Russia or some of these other places, you know, uh, disrupting the US or global financial system in ways that, you know, can harm uh, US or global uh, economies, et cetera, et cetera. And so, we have managed, I think, on the global side, at least, to maintain some bipartisan support. And just to give you an example, uh, yes, the Corporate Transparency Act is something we always point to. And sometimes people say, OK, well, that was just a one off and it's never going to happen again. Um, I want to be clear that that's actually not true. So there is a bill that's been introduced called the Foreign Extortion Prevention Act, just to give one example, but I'm happy to give additional examples, where that would extend, expand our anti-bribery, our global, you know, international anti-bribery laws to the demand side of bribery rather than just the giving side. So a corporation goes over to overseas and a U.S. corporation goes overseas, offers a bribe, that's illegal. But what happens when the corrupt official says, no, 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 I'm going to, I need a bribe to give you the permit or, or turn a blind eye when you do various things, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to now criminalize that. That bill, which is an anti-corruption bill, it's an anti-bribery bill has the support of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and Greenpeace USA. Um, and we have another bill called the Enablers Act, uh, which I think is going to be have some changes to it, but is going to be introduced or reintroduced um, fairly soon. 
And there, uh, well, if you look at the existing bill, it has, I think, three Republicans and three Democrats on it. So I do think that these sets of issues, when you look at the global sort of transnational uh, aspects to the corruption issue and the anti-money laundering, we've managed to bring together, uh, I think, a wider um, spectrum, you know, a wider sample of the political spectrum. Can I ask you, this is just a point of clarification, but you you explained very nicely and succinctly what the Foreign Extortion Prevention Act does. Not all of our listeners might be familiar with the Enablers Act, although it was a bit of a tip off. Can you just say a few words so that our listeners understand what that bill would do if enacted? And again, I know it's, it's still being reworked, but the basic gist. Sure. So we talk about enablers. Uh, other words for it, are, which may be even clearer to many people, is more of a gatekeeper to the U.S. financial system. The lawyers, the accountants, the financial managers that uh, take and you know bring money into the U.S. financial system um, and help people move, manage, and move that money around. The real estate professionals would be another one, right? The, when um, when the corrupt leader of Equatorial Guinea wanted to buy a mansion in New York, he hired a lawyer. Like he didn't fly over himself and say, hey, I'm a corrupt official and I want to buy a mansion. He hired uh, a lawyer who then set up a series of companies so that you can't, you know, anonymous companies. So you didn't really know who owned them. And through those vehicles, they purchased the money. Uh, they purchased the, the mansion. So when I refer to enablers or gatekeepers, we're talking about the people that help corrupt and criminal officials bring the money into the U.S. financial system. And in terms of the act, right, so the, the, in terms of the bill, my understanding, you correct me if I'm wrong about this, is the bill would do several things, but the principal one that it would do is the thing that it would do would be to apply the same kinds of requirements with respect to due diligence on clients and filing suspicious activity reports with the U.S. Treasury Department on these other actors, lawyers, real estate agents, accountants, et cetera, that are currently applied to uh, banks and other financial institutions. Is that basically right? I mean, I was asking not just what enablers are, but specifically the enabler act, the one that has the three Republican, three Democratic co-sponsors right now. Uh, is, that a, is that an accurate summary of what the bill would do? Or if not, can you, can you explain a little bit what that law, if passed, would do? Yes. Uh, yes, I should have said that. So uh, it would apply various anti-money laundering protocols to those professions. Uh, I think that some people refer to it as the know your customer rules. That is, if somebody's going to come and ask you to help them move millions of dollars through the financial system, you can't just take their money. You have to know that they are, in fact, who they say they are and that that is an individual that is somebody you should be doing business with. They're not on a sanctions list. They're not a part of a criminal cartel. They're not using stolen money and asking you to launder it without telling you. So yes, it is applying anti-money laundering protocols, um, practices to those professions. I will say that there are some people, and it, it, it is easy shorthand to say, yeah, what the banks do, just make that applicable to all these other professions. That doesn't actually work. So the bill does attempt to take a look at each of the various players and figure out what is the most appropriate um, protocols to apply. If, for example, banks, when you open up a bank account, you have an ongoing relationship. So banks as part of their anti-money laundering protocols have to have ongoing monitoring uh, responsibilities. A realtor, you buy the house, the realtor may send you a Christmas card every year, but they don't necessarily come back to make sure year after year 
that you still have your job and you're paying your mortgage with legitimate you know, money. So we need to sort of adjust them by profession and by function, but essentially, yes, that is uh, what we're talking about is applying those same types of rules to various professions. In terms of tailoring the rules to various professions, you know, one profession that is near and dear to my heart, as you might imagine, given that I teach at a law school, is the legal profession. And as we've discussed uh, before, the legal profession has um, not all, when I say the legal profession, I mean the Organized American Bar Association has not always been enthusiastic about a variety of uh, the anti-money laundering rules that you and others have supported, particularly with respect to applying them to legal professionals. With respect to something like the um, Enablers Act, I gather that concerns have been raised by the American Bar Association and others, less with respect to the know your customer piece of this, but but with respect to at least the original version of the Enablers Act, as I was was mentioning before, the application of suspicious activity reporting requirements to lawyers. And there was a concern that that might interfere with the traditional duties of loyalty and confidentiality that lawyers owe to their clients. Uh, I'm not sure how closely you've been working on that aspect of the bill. So if this is is something that uh, maybe we shouldn't spend a lot of time on, that's fine. But I'm curious if you have thoughts about the right way to um, tailor these kinds of anti-money laundering requirements to the legal profession. Just to elaborate a little bit, like on the one hand, it seems exactly right that if uh, a kleptocratic dictator from Equatorial Guinea or or wherever uh, wants to purchase a bunch of luxury property in the US and wants to go through a lawyer to do it, uh, if the lawyer is essentially functioning as as a middleman, uh, and helping to arrange these transactions, uh, a lawyer should be in the, under the same obligations as any other intermediary doing the same kind of fan, financial management. On the other hand, the nature of suspicious activity reporting is, you know, you go to the government, you don't tell uh, the client or, or prospective client. Um, and if I, you know, if I hire you as my lawyer, uh, because I'm involved in a legal proceeding with the US government, and to represent me, you collect a ton of information about my financial position, some of which looks suspicious. It would seem instinctively to a lot of people problematic if then you would not only could, but would be under a legal obligation to, without my knowledge, tell the U.S. government about all that stuff, right? So how do you strike the right balance where you apply the appropriate degree of regulation to the legal profession so they don't end up being enablers of money laundering, but still create the space for you know, legitimate, zealous representation. Even people who've done illegal stuff, right? We usually think deserve a lawyer who can represent them effectively and put the government to its proof if they want to try to nail them for any particular thing. So thoughts on that? Sure. So I do want to take one step back to say that there is a huge difference between the legal professionals and the American Bar Association. And even within the American Bar Association, I will say that there's a lot of debate on this issue. The organized bar, the ABA has not, you know, I think you rightfully were saying, oh, some of this seems easy and some of it's harder. The ABA has opposed all of it. Like they even opposed, if a lawyer is simply filing the paperwork, right, and the obligation are under to, under the Corporate Transparency Act to provide beneficial ownership information is actually on the company, not the lawyer. They said, oh, even if we fill out compliance forms that our client asked us to file, 
that's a violation of attorney-client privilege. So they've taken the privilege and expanded it beyond any kind of sensible um, interpretation. However, I do think that there are some legitimate questions as you raise about where do we draw this line so that we're not in, in, you know, we're not interfering with true attorney-client privilege uh, concerns. And I think it's something that you said is exactly right. And it's one of the reasons we want to sort of take a closer look at the current Enablers Act and, and maybe do some redrafting. It's not that the lawyer should be, it's not that lawyers writ large should be covered any more than accountants writ large should be covered. However, if somebody is acting in a specific set of gatekeeper type activities, right, and the function that they are doing is not necessarily as a lawyer, but as setting up a company for someone or doing something that is a gatekeeper function, then you can say that those responsibilities are across the board. And let me give you sort of an extreme example. A lot of people do go to lawyers to say, please set up a company for me. But what happens if I went to my plumber? We're not going to cover all plumbers. It's ridiculous. If a plumber should have a side business where they are, for some reason, filing paperwork and creating companies, they should have the same responsibilities as someone who is a full-time corporate formation agent. The issue is not what your title is or what you went to school for, but rather the function that you are serving for a particular client. And I think if we limit the functionality of the requirement to whom the requirements apply, then I think we can avoid a lot of those questions because the way that some of these requirements were written, some of the laws and the provisions were written, it would potentially imply that if somebody comes to me and asks me to ask, uh, if somebody comes to a lawyer and asks them for defense, that that lawyer would potentially have due diligence requirements and nobody thinks that that's the right answer. So we want to redraft the bill so that it is more around function and around the service that you're providing rather than the particular profession for which you went to school. And I think that that will go a long way in addressing these concerns. Let me ask about the other bill that you mentioned, uh, the Foreign Extortion Prevention Act which uh, I'm very sympathetic to it. It seems like, you know, if I were a member of Congress, vote for it, presumably. I I do have some practical questions about the law that I suspect you've thought about, certainly more than I have. I'd be interested in getting your take on it. So um, it doesn't seem to me like there's a lot of downside to enacting this law. I mean, there's some complications, but I, I, I do wonder how much practical upside there would be, given some of the obstacles to bringing a a federal prosecution in U.S. court against a foreign public official. So um, I guess the biggest question I would have would have to do with getting jurisdiction over that person. Um, You know, there are going to be some cases where basically you've told the person they can't come to the United States anymore. It functions as a de facto travel ban, and that's not nothing. Um, that seems relevant. But I do wonder how realistic it is to imagine that you're actually going to be able to put these people on trial. Um, I suppose you could ask for extradition, but I could imagine it would get a little bit politically and diplomatically 
dicey if the U.S. government were asking the government of, say, a country like India, which is basically a friendly country, but there's a lot of there's a fair amount of corruption, especially uh, at the at the bureaucratic level. If the U.S. were regularly on on the testimony of U.S. corporate executives telling India to extradite its sitting government officials to stand, stand trial in U.S. federal court, it's just like that seems like it could be difficult. And I would also wonder about uh, the evidence gathering process, because very often to gather evidence in cases involving conduct that takes place abroad, you need the cooperation of the jurisdiction. Not always, right? If you have someone sending an email to a U.S. company saying, please give me the following bribe and deposit the following Swiss bank account, that would be a little bit easier. But if you would need to do an investigation in India or Thailand or Malaysia or whatever, it just seems like it might be challenging. So again, none of these are reasons to vote against the law, um, which it seems like could have an effect in at least a subset of cases. But I wonder if you or other people who've been working on advocacy uh, around this law have, have given some thought to some of the practical and political challenges of, again, trying to put on trial in U.S. federal court uh, sitting government officials of foreign governments. Um, it seems like it's challenging both if it's a hostile government you know, but also if it's a friendly government, it seems like this is a, a delicate issue. So, so what about that? Right, so several things. And I do, I, I want to say that I do acknowledge that I think it is a, there's challenges. So it's not uh, quite as, as simple as, as some other rules, but uh, a few things. I think one, um, the Foreign Corruption, uh, Foreign Corruption Practices Act is also prosecuting activities that happen overseas. Now it is involving US companies. Of course, this law also is limited to involving um, US companies. So there may be some additional complications, which you know, no doubt if we drill down, that's true, but we do manage to prosecute uh, FCPA cases uh, and we manage to be able to, to gather that evidence. So I do think that it is possible. I also think that there are uh, companies that are going to be helpful in uh, on some of these cases, right? Because it also it's this is anything that involves uh, interstate commerce. And by the way, I am not a lawyer, so I am only going to give as much as I understand. We have a twenty-page memo on our website, us.transparency.org, uh, where we've had uh, some FCPA lawyers talk about the uh, extra jurisdictional issues and et cetera, et cetera. So, but this, it will also apply if a foreign official is asking a bunch of companies for bribes and a US company loses out on a contract that then goes to a competitor from another country, that would be uh, a violation of the law. I would imagine that US companies are going to be more than happy to say, hey, we lost out on this contract because we wouldn't pay the bribe, or maybe they wouldn't pay as high a price as you know, they were being asked for. Whatever the circumstances, that we may get some cooperation from US companies. So I, I think on the gathering evidence and the prosecution side, I'm not as concerned. I do think that there are complications, no doubt, but I do think that there are ways of doing it. In terms of the punishment, look, if if Peru or you know Bangladesh or what have you passed one of these laws, I don't know how much of an impact it would have. 
but the U.S. financial system and access to U.S. markets, access, I mean, it is a big deal um, for people not to be able to travel to the U.S. You say, well, India might not want to, you know, send over its officials, but France may have no problem. So does that mean that that Indian official can no longer travel to any country that has an extradition treaty with the United States because they don't care and they want to maintain good relationships with the United States? So I'll certainly, if he touches a foot on, my, on our soil, I'll, I'll uh, extradite him. So I do think that it will have an impact. When the U.S. does something, it does tend to have some resonance um, because people so care about access to the dollar, access to our markets, and being able to travel here. So uh, on both of those, again, those are not, I don't mean to say it's perfect and I'm dismissing them because I think those are serious issues that you raise, but I also think that the impact is going to be uh, significant enough that it is not just uh, passing something for the sake of passing it. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and, and those, those arguments strike me as, as basically compelling. Uh, and just to be clear, in, in raising the kinds of concerns I was raising, I didn't mean to be suggesting, as I said, I think when I when I uh, introduced the question before, that it wasn't a, a good idea. I just, I'm, I'm trying to sort of game out the scenarios in my head and see how it plays out. You do, One might wonder, and this is maybe a little bit of an issue to the side, but in this context, my understanding from having talked to law enforcement anti-corruption people in other countries, especially in the developing world, the U.S. isn't always great about sharing information and evidence that could be used in anti-corruption prosecutions of foreign public officials. Um, One might have thought that not always, but sometimes what ought to happen is that if a U.S. company is hit up for a bribe by a foreign official and turns that information over to the U.S. government, the U.S. government ought to turn that information over to the prosecutors in whatever foreign country it is, so they can go after their own public officials. That's not going to work everywhere. I mean, it's obvious there are certain countries where that's just non-starter, right? Like, that's not, not going to happen in Russia uh, or Equatorial Guinea. But it might happen in India or Thailand or, you know, Colombia. So it's not, it just seems like it's interesting that there's what looks like um I don't know if an end run is the right term, but but a, an impulse on the U.S. side to do this uh, directly through U.S. criminal prosecutions of foreign officials rather than expanding U.S. efforts to support the prosecution of these foreign officials in foreign courts. Is that a fair concern to raise? I mean, again, it's not a reason not to pass this statute. It just seems like yeah. I just I, I guess I sense a little bit of a I don't know if tension is the right word, but but it's striking that there's this push admittedly on the Congress side in the civil society world to expand the ability of U.S. prosecutors to go after foreign officials in U.S. courts. And I put that alongside the regular complaints of foreign prosecutors that the U.S. government through the DOJ or what have you is not doing a whole lot to support the prosecution of essentially the same class of foreign officials in foreign courts. Uh, Two things I'd say on that. One is that you know, there's a lot of talk about anti-corruption officials and enforcing laws all around the world. Lots of countries have anti-bribery laws uh, like our FCPA and extended, they already have the demand side of right. They already have the FIPA style uh, laws in place. Transparency International does a periodic, I think every two or three years, we look at um, anti-bribery enforcement around the world. And we uh, last time we looked at a little over 40 countries and found four 
were actively enforcing their anti-bribery laws. So part of my response would be, show us that you're willing to prosecute and we'll not have to worry about this law. But I, we haven't seen it. Um, the zeal to prosecute these cases uh, and put money and resources into investigating and going after these individuals uh, has not really surfaced. So in a way that I think says, oh, the U.S. doesn't have to do it. The U.S. is certainly far from perfect in its prosecution, but we are far better than our colleagues around the world. That's the first thing. Second thing I would say, which is actually the flip side and to support those, the people that you're talking to, is I think the U.S. is horrible at sharing information. It is stunning to me how we, the gymnastics we go through so that we don't have to share information. You know, most, a good portion of the world is on something called the common reporting standard to share information on tax data to try and get international tax cheats. We're not on that. We have our own law, the Foreign, Exter Foreign Accounts Tax Print, uh, Compliance Act, or FATCA, and the two are not compatible. So we can't just automatically share information with even our allies uh, where we do think the rule of law is in place and we would trust them. I'm not saying we should ship all our you know, information all over the world uh, to actors and, and countries where we don't think that there's the rule of law. But there are so many ways in which we could improve information sharing and be better partners in going after uh, corrupt actors. One of the things that is going to come out of the summit for democracy, not to circle back, but is a, I talked about the multi-stakeholder uh, task forces. One of them is gonna be on anti-money laundering and a portion of that is going to be on information sharing. And the question is whether the US government doesn't just push other nations to share information with us, but are we actually going to engage in a process where we share information with others? I mean, our, our key way of sharing information is through the MLAT process or the Mutual Legal Assistance Treaties. And it could take years to process information that way. That's crazy. Cases go dry, people disappear, evidence gets stale. It should not take years to process some of these basic requests. And so there's a lot we could do on the information sharing. And I would say that the people you're talking with are 100% correct uh, in that the U.S. is not uh, forthcoming the way that they need to be. Yeah, that's, I, that, that's again, it corresponds very much with what I've heard. Uh, very encouraging to hear that this will be part of the Summit for Democracy agenda as that starts to move forward. With respect to the first point you raised, I'll just note that there is a potentially encouraging analogy with the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, where you know, many countries had laws uh, that would prevent their own companies from paying bribes. A lot of those companies also fall under FCPA jurisdiction. There's an argument, which I find persuasive, that when the U.S. started aggressively enforcing the FCPA against these foreign companies, that's one of the things that induced those governments. France is the example that springs to mind. There was a lot of displeasure in France that French companies that fell under U.S. jurisdiction because they were listing on a U.S. exchange or had some other kind of U.S. presence were getting prosecuted by the Department, U.S. Department of Justice uh, for FCPA violations, and that that was one of the things that created the political momentum to pass reforms to uh, French law and to increase the aggressiveness with which uh, French prosecutors would go after these companies. I mean, on the FCPA side, the U.S. position has been that you know, we'll stand down 
if the if there's a better venue for prosecuting these cases, often if the host country's government is doing a good job, I imagine if FIPA, the Foreign Extortion Prevention Act, if that becomes law, it could be something similar, right? I could easily imagine the U.S. saying, hey, you know, India, if you're prosecuting these guys already, we're not going to bother, you know, using our resources to bring a criminal prosecution in U.S. federal court if they're already going to go to jail in India. But if you're not, uh, then we're going to take action. And this might be the poke that some countries need to start enforcing these laws more aggressively. At least that's, that, that would be the hope. Um, I've kept you for too long. We're almost out of um, time. But before we wrap, let me ask you to, to look ahead a bit. And I'd love to hear more about what you see as the most important agenda items for Transparency International's U.S. office or the anti-corruption community in the U.S. of which you're a part for the next year. Um, we've been doing this, this is our third uh, interview now. If we do another one of these a year from now, maybe I'll put it this way. If we do another one of these a year from now, what are you hoping to be able to say you will have accomplished in the, in the intervening year? Uh, which is another, just another way of saying in the upcoming year, um, in addition to the things you've already discussed, wanting to ensure that the that the Treasury Department and other U.S. agencies finish these rulemakings and issue rules that are as strong as it as we optimistically uh, expect them uh, to be, um, and in addition to passage of statutes like FIPA and a, an updated version of the Enablers Act, what else is on the agenda for the coming year? Or we can even look out for like a five-year time horizon. What are the big, most important issues where you want to see? Uh, substantial progress? Well, I think um, in addition to the things that we've already mentioned, although I do want to point out in addition to the rulemakings, the Enablers Act or whatever successor proposal comes out is actually the next big fight. I do want to just say that, that that is sort of, you know, we were working for years on the Corporate Transparency Act to get beneficial ownership transparency. The next stage is to get, uh, the next step is to get these enablers uh, under some kind of regulatory regime. But beyond that, I think there are several things that we need to do. Some are, uh, you know, you might consider housekeeping, but I think it, they're actually pretty important and others are sort of more um, longer term forward looking. So some of the sort of housekeeping things, right now our agency, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network or FinCEN has the same budget uh, and is basically the same size as its equivalent agency in Australia, even though we have 10 times the size of the economy and we're the world's reserve currency. So with the same money that a $2 trillion economy is looking to, to monitor its own systems, we're now looking at uh, having to regulate the entire global economy. That is not only, I don't mean to say it's not enough money. I mean, we are like, it is a scalable jump we need to make, um, uh, exponential jump that we need to make if we're actually going to do this stuff seriously and have any legitimate chance of reigning in some of the things that we're talking about. We're going to give all these new powers to this agency that has no money and the chance a bunch of data is going to come in and there's going to be no one on the other side to actually look at it, evaluate it and start uh, creating investigations to refer to for prosecution. So that is actually, it's one of those things that sounds technical, but is actually a pretty cornerstone issue if we're going to actually be serious about having this stuff be enforced. The other things that are on the plate, I think, um, you know, as we talk about, we've talked a little bit about information sharing. I think there's a lot that needs to happen there. 
um, you know, not only on the issues that we've talked about, just sharing information and intel uh, for investigations and improving the uh, mutual legal assistance treaty program, but there's also issues around transparency and trade and trade-based money laundering. Um, and we're, we have bipartisan support for a potential bill that is uh, also being drafted and we're hoping will be introduced in the next few months. And then the other thing I would say is um, right now, Congress is considering a reauthorization of the Global Magnitsky Sanctions Program. Um, it expires at the end of next year, I think it is. It's either the end of this year or the end of next year. I think it's the end of next year. And so we need to reauthorize that program. Uh, what that is, is it is a sanctions program where we could apply uh, sanctions on actors who engage in serious human rights uh, violations or corruption. And that law has now inspired similar laws uh, in the UK, Canada, and Australia, I think, and the EU uh, is now considering similar programs. If we're able to, in those countries, push similar sanctions programs, there's actually an interest which I think is really needed, and that is to have coordinated sanctions and begin those kinds of multilateral discussions. Sanctions programs in any one country, although with the United States, as I said before, it's a bigger deal, but you know, if you're Canada or Italy or Spain, you know, being sanctioned by one of those countries is not necessarily the end of the world. If you're a corrupt individual, you can avoid those countries. If there is a coordinated sanctions program that most of the, you know, advanced economies are participating in, then I think it really begins to choke off access to the financial system and puts uh, people it just makes it much harder to launder your money and move your money around the globe. So I do think coordinated sanctions is something that is really potentially of interest, uh, along with other sort of information sharing. You can tell that I'm sort of trying to figure out the next step is how do we work multilaterally? This is a global problem. And so we need to solve a lot of these things in coordination with partners and allies. And so that's sort of the next step. Once we clean up the stuff in our own house, how do we then globalize it and make sure that we're, we're doing things in a coordinated fashion that has an amplified impact. Fascinating. I, I hope that the next time I have an opportunity to speak with you, uh, possibly on this podcast or possibly not, we'll have seen more progress on, on all of these fronts. Um, thank you so much, Gary, for uh, sharing your observations, insights, thoughts, et cetera, with me and with our podcast listeners yet again. It's been great to have you on. So again, my name is Matthew Stevenson. My guest on this episode of Kickback has been Gary Kalman, the Director of Transparency International's United States Office. Thank you so much, Gary. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. If you want to learn more about Gary's work, check out the show notes. You can also use the timestamps to navigate through the episode. If you haven't already, make sure to check out our first two interviews with Gary. You can find them in our episode list under episodes 24 and 48. If you want to support our podcast, please share this episode with your colleagues and friends. To stay updated, follow us on Twitter under at KickbackGAB. Kickback is a joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is made by Niels Kürbis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleimpers and me, Christopher Starke with assistance by Amy Assad and music by Kaihan Golkar. Stay safe, everyone. Until next time.